1954, Milan High School, a small school of just 161 students. I'm sorry, Milan, thank you. All right. You're not, yep, there we go. We're not going to get away with this. You can tell I'm not a born and bred Hoosier. Milan High School. Why don't I check these things beforehand? <laughs> That's right. Just checking. There you go. Milan High School only had 161 students, but yet they won the Indiana State Basketball Championship against all odds. You might have said and thought that at the beginning of their season, it would have been hopeless that they would actually win a championship. Their victory, often referred to as the Milan Miracle, right? No, Milan <laughs> Miracle. It's a classic example of unexpected triumph in Indiana sports history. Really, it became a national understanding with the movie Hoosiers, which was the fictional, this is something I had to learn after watching the movie, that, that uh, there really wasn't a Hickory High School that won that state championship, but it was the story of Milan High School winning that championship against all odds. This basketball version of David versus Goliath represents for us what it looks like to have hope in what seems hopeless. And of course, I learned pretty quickly after moving here that I better watch the movie multiple times and not make a mistake like calling it Milan High School. Lesson learned. So this morning, we're looking at two scenarios, two events that overlap, that, that Matthew and, and all the other synoptic writers, that would be Mark and Luke, uh, describe this situation of, of one experience falling within the, the context of the other. But these are, these are two experiences that, that overlap, and what they... One, one aspect that they have in common is they move from a situation of from being hopeless to hopeful. They move from being hopeless to hopeful, and that based on the faith, the hope of the people involved. I think you'll see this morning the idea of moving from hopeless to hopeful has to do with what or who we are hoping in. We all know someone that has every earthly reason to have hope in the future even, but yet they feel hopeless. That has every reason, every economic reason, every relational reason, but yet they can't seem to get out of this sense of hopelessness. We also know those who seem to have every reason to feel hopeless from the outside, but yet they are hopeful. It all has to do with what or who their hope is resting. Who is their hope resting in? We'll see this morning that Jesus has the power to turn a hopeless situation into one that is truly hopeful. I read about a little boy that was, that was praying uh, saying his nightly prayers before uh, going to bed. And he says, Lord, please please take care of my, 
my daddy, my mommy, my brother, my sister, my puppy. Please take care of me. And oh yeah, God, please take care of yourself. Because if anything happens to you, we're all going to be in a big mess. He knew where his hope resided, and that was in the person of God. Let's read about these two situations turning from a big hopeless mess into being hopeful, full of hope. We pick up in verse 18 of Matthew 9. While he was saying these things to them, Matthew is, is making a chronological connection to what came beforehand, where, and you might remember his, his discussion about old wineskins and new wineskins and old patch of cloth and new patch of cloth. And Matthew says, while he was saying these very things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him saying, my daughter has just died. But come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. As we've seen before, Matthew gives the Joe Friday version of this, right? Just the facts. This ruler comes in, and he kneels before Jesus. We see the humility of this important person. We understand that his daughter is dead. And yet we see of the father's faith in Jesus, as Savior, as Messiah, I believe. You come and touch her, and she will live. We see the simplicity of the request. Just lay your hand on her. And Jesus' response, it's go time. Right? He gets up, and he goes with his disciples. This is Matthew's, like, just given the facts here. And then something gets inserted into this story in verse 20. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and said to her, seeing her and said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And continue on in verse 23. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players in the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And this, the report of this went throughout all the districts. So are we talking here about hope or about faith? Right? We see the faith of this father. We see even Jesus say to this woman who had suffered for 12 years, your faith has made you well. So are we talking about hope here, J.D., or about faith? Yes, is the answer. We can see the interrelationship of hope and faith in Hebrews 11.1, where we read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I appreciate how John Piper clarifies this when he says, The distinctive marks of hope, it is always future-oriented and consists in a firm confidence of what we are hoping for. It is not just a wish. In other words, what, what he's telling us is that faith... 
applied to the future is hope. Hope is faith applied to the future. Faith involves trusting all that God has done and will do in Christ. And a subset there of that faith that is applied to the future is hope. The firm trust of what God has promised for the future. Having faith in the person and work of Jesus, I want to challenge you to also put your hope in the one who conquered death. And we see the outgrowth of that here. That Jesus is the one who conquered death. Luke gives us quite a bit more information about this situation. And, I, and I'm going to highlight some of those things. And it's for the purpose of helping us to see, so what is it that Matthew is trying to get across? All right, Luke tells us that the man's name is Jairus and that he's actually a ruler of the synagogue. It's very possible that, as we saw last week, that this is actually going on in the synagogue in Capernaum and one of the very rulers, you know, I don't know if he was like the, the law reader or, you know, the, the attendance checker or something like that, but he, he had an important role. He was respected there in the synagogue. He falls at the feet of Jesus, the intervarsity Press Bible background commentary says one would fall at the feet of someone of much greater status, like a king, or prostrate oneself before God. Thus, this prominent man of hum- to humble himself in this way before Jesus was to recognize Jesus' power in a serious and visible way. Something that's really curious to me is how Luke explains actually. That the man is asking Jesus to come to his house. And and while he is doing that, Luke mentions that the 12-year-old daughter is on the brink of death. But not dead yet. She was dying. It's only after the episode with the woman that that Jesus pauses for and, and who God heals through Jesus that Jairus learns that his little girl is dead. In fact, he's encouraged not to bother Jesus any longer. You can read about that in Luke 8, verses 49 through 50, where where we read, While he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house, while Jesus was still speaking to this woman, someone from the ruler's house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. I think it's this point that Jairus makes the statement that Matthew records. My daughter has just died, but come lay your hand on her and she will live. It's in response to Jesus' statement about himself. Matthew's emphasizing that this father makes his request of Jesus even though his daughter is dead. And he makes that clear by, by not even referring to the fact that, that the man learned of the girl's death while speaking with Jesus. In the Old Testament, there were only basically two prophets, Elijah and Elisha, that were used of God to raise the dead. Notice the confidence in Jesus that the Father displays. Lay your hand on her and she will live. 
Notice also what this Jewish leader is asking Jesus to do. Lay your hand on her. Anybody want to point out what's surprising about a Jewish leader of the synagogue asking Jesus to lay his hand on a dead person? Yeah. This would have made, by Jewish ceremonial law, they would have considered Jesus unclean. Unclean for seven days if he touched a dead body. It's according to Numbers 19. When we continue reading in verse 23, we're going to kind of jump over the, this, this um, interim situation with the woman that, that comes up to Jesus. We'll come back to her. In verse 23, we read, And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for this girl is not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand. And the girl arose, and the report of this went through all the district. Now, uh, there were a number of flute players and, and wailing women. We know that because it was actually a requirement in the Mishnah, the, the interpretation of the Old Testament law, of just how many flute players and wailing women there should be. Not less than two flute players and one wailing woman should be at each funeral. Uh, at this time in this culture. I'm reading it to you right from the Mishnah here. And that had to do with allowing for the cathartic experience. It was kind of like pressure release for the family to have someone there wailing, and, and Matthew calls it making a commotion. Regarding Jesus saying the girl is not dead but sleeping, Jesus isn't lying to the crowd, okay? He's not pulling a miracle max from Princess Bride, right? She's just mostly dead, right? It's not what Jesus is doing here. Sleeping became an expression for death, looking at death with hope. Looking at death, even someone being dead, to understand that they will be raised again. Throughout the New Testament, they're called as, they're described as just being sleeping. You see that in 1 Thessalonians 5, where it talks about those who have died, those who have died in Christ, whether they're, um, uh, I'm sorry, we are either described as being awake when Jesus returns or asleep. Awake in Christ or dead in Christ, that awake or asleep, either one, we will live with Christ. We also see that Jesus took her by the hand. Jesus is not concerned. You know, even with Jairus' faith, it's not like Jesus was like, whoa, you're not going to make me unclean, Jairus. I know what you're trying to do. No, he touches her. Matthew includes that detail. He takes her by hand the hand. Jesus isn't concerned about being unclean according to the law. I think this, this points to Matthew's team, uh, theme of the power to reverse the impact of the curse, the curse that came with sin. The curse is the consequence of sin in our world, pain, illness, death, separation of relationships or separation physically of the, the spirit from the body at death. Living with disappointment and fear 
means hopelessness. The answer is faith, which results in hope when the future is concerned. And the people were going through the motions of how you deal with death, how you deal with this loss, how you deal with this separation, this final separation. And we shouldn't blame them for responding with disbelief to Jesus' claim. As Warren Wiersbe writes, we must learn to trust Christ and his promises no matter how we feel, no matter what others say, no matter how the circumstances may look. Even though this, this father is surrounded by how it's normal to respond to death, he is looking with hope, convinced in faith. So Matthew cuts to what we see as the important details of the story, the extreme nature of his request, the faith of this father. Matthew also emphasizes the request for Jesus to do something that would have made him ritually unclean. Lay your hand on her. It appears, as I mentioned, that Jesus' responding to this faith is more important than ceremonial cleanliness. Understand that within the law, being ceremonially clean or unclean, it was communicating to Israel that they needed to understand the separation that sin brought. The, the legalism of the law was wrapped up in the idea that if you do this, God will not accept you. God cannot accept you. That is how devastating sin is. But if you take part in this that will allow him to pass over your sin, he will accept you. And we know from this point in history that he, God was able to pass over those former sins because he was going to pour this, the penalty out on Christ. Here the Messiah was standing before him. The Messiah doesn't have to worry about being unclean. So getting to the house here, well, well we see that Jesus' solution to the, the entirety of the, concern, the curse, concern, the, these concerns about being ceremonially unclean were gone because the Messiah was there and he was going to be fixing it. Knowing that her death wasn't going to be permanent, Jesus gives a description of her death from his perspective. She's only asleep. She will be raised. And Jesus intentionally touches her and makes her alive. You know, the, the lesson in this of, of trusting that put, and putting our hope in the one who conquered death, it isn't like you know, trying to get past a certain level on your, the little game on your phone, okay? And older folks, I know you can identify with this because I see you at the restaurants, you know, playing on your phones. It's not like, you know, you, you got this level that you need to play past, so you're going to go get one of your grandkids. You're like, oh, surely they can do this because I need to get, you know, like more lives or, you know, more... Powerballs or something like that for, for the next time. And, and it's not like the situation of involving a person that can beat that level for you. Jesus has already conquered death. It's not like, hey, Jesus, come over here. I need you to, to, to conquer death for me too. 
It's not like being trained by a fighter who was a world heavyweight champion. In that situation would involve preparing us to defeat death ourselves. Being well trained by the one who's already done it. It's kind of like finding a fireproof suit that has been tested, that has been proved to be death-proof. And by putting it on, we're not going to have to defeat death by wearing that, but by putting on Christ, we have defeated death. It's like we get to touch into the fact that he has died and risen again And we live in him now. That's what it means to be in Christ. Not prepared to beat death ourselves. Not asking Christ to come and defeat it again. But by putting on Christ, that is where we are able to put our hope in the one who conquered death. When we are baptized into Christ, we are in Christ. Christ, as Romans 6 tells us, or have you forgotten, this is from the New Living Translation, or have you forgotten that when you were joined with Christ, Jesus, in baptism, we joined him in his death? For we died and were buried with Christ by baptism. And just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glorious power of the Father, now we also may live new lives. Just as Christ has been raised from the dead, we are able to live a new life. This is how we can live out in hope. Now after the cross, just as this father and his daughter were able to live out their their hope, their faith in this Messiah, even before he died and rose again. When we have a saving faith, we are trusting our relationship with a person, this same Jesus. And faith says to Christ, I trust you. You are a reliable person. You are a trustworthy person. It says, I trust what you say what, that you have done. And therefore, we have hope because Jesus has also told us that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That what he accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection, has been applied to us in Christ. And therefore, we can, you can put your hope in the one who conquered death as well. Remember this other hopeless situation in the middle of our passage, in the middle of Jesus' interaction with this father. There's a woman who's been in a terrible situation And we see her faith in Christ at work. And from her demonstration of faith, I want to encourage you to put your hope in the great physician. Put your hope in the great physician. We read in Matthew uh, 9.20, And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. And Jesus turned and seeing her, and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. So here's just the facts from Matthew. The woman's time of suffering, it's 12 years of bleeding, 12 years of basically uh, menstruation, 
uh, uh, unstopped and chronic. And her simple action of faith is, if I just touch the fringe, this would be those Jewish tassels on the bottom of Jesus' cloak. So she's low with this. She's sneaking up. She's on ground level here. And Matthew shares Jesus' statement, your faith has made you well. Look at what Matthew ignores from Luke. Luke in, in Luke 8, he includes that she had spent her all of her living on physicians. Isn't this, isn't this funny? Uh, she could not be healed by any of them. Luke, the physician, is like, yeah, she spent all of her money on physicians trying to be healed of this. We, we, we read in Luke 8 also that she came behind him and when she touched the fringe of the garment, immediately she was healed. Immediately this bleeding stopped. And I, you can imagine that the anemia, the weakness that came with this was probably reversed. It was probably like, I am different. We also read in Luke that, that Jesus actually says, who was it that touched me? And, and, and everybody around is like, I didn't do it. And Peter's like, Master, the crowds are surrounding you. Everybody's touching you. They're pressing in on you. But Jesus said, someone touched me, for I perceived that power has gone out from me. So Matthew does not include these details, but it's helpful to see. Understand that this woman was ceremonially unclean. This is another thing of this hopeless situation that both of these people have in common. She is ceremonially unclean. The, the Old Testament law described a woman who was in the midst of menstruation was uh, unclean. And she's in a permanent state of this. Being touched by her would have rendered, rendered other people ceremonially unclean for the rest of the day. This would have included just bumping into her in a crowd. Now, while the synagogue leader would have been well-known and respected for his position, this woman would have been well-known and shunned because of her condition of being unclean. It would have been like, whoa, that's her. Don't touch her. Or you're going to have to leave the synagogue. For the rest of the day, you're, you're, you're going to have to stay, you know, other people are going to have to stay away from you for the rest of the day. It would have been surprising to find her in this crowd. The New Testament commentary says her determination and her conviction of Jesus' healing power outweighed the risk. So it probably would have also been surprising to see Jesus stop attending to the needs of Jairus for her. And Jesus' response is so tender and assuring. He says, take heart, daughter. Your faith has made you well. Recall his statement to the paralyzed man last week. Take heart, my son. Your sins are forgiven. What tenderness. What Matthew emphasizes is, again, Jesus' power over the curse. This woman would have been going through the motions of how to deal with this illness. And we, we don't blame her for seeking help from physicians. That's what we, we should do. 
Once again, we see Jesus trumps the laws regarding being ritually clean. He doesn't look back and go, look, do you know what you just did? Jesus doesn't have to worry about being unclean. Now, I want to say, because this woman was healed without Jesus' quote permission, a false teacher would say, God can't say no to faith. Have enough faith and you can twist God's arm. But, but understand that our under, you know, what we know from Philippians 2, Jesus had submitted his power to heal under the authority of God the Father. So that this healing would have still been permitted by God the Father. Also, Jesus is telling her that he, his faith has made her, her faith had made her well. This does not mean that God promises to immediately heal everyone who has enough faith. A false teaching would be, with great faith, I will be able to get God to do this or that. I heard a horrible example of this recently of a, a pastor of a Haitian church took his congregation and said, whoever has great faith, follow me. And they marched through a gang-controlled neighborhood. And the shooting started. And the pastor had told the marchers that they were bulletproof. And then after they got to the other side of the street, he, the area, he said, anybody that got shot, they simply didn't have enough faith. That's nuts. Biblical faith trusts in God's greatness and his goodness. Biblical faith trusts that God can do whatever his will desires. Biblical faith trusts that God, if it is for our best, he will act according to his will. He will do whatever is for best for his glory and for our good. But we should not hesitate to ask him for what we desire. Biblical faith is not an effective in itself. It is effective based on what or who our faith is in. On what or who we are placing our hope. Think, think of, a, of a father who's a surgeon. And they have a child that has a condition that if they just took them into the operating room, they could fix it in a matter of hours. But they need to wait. Uh, Kelly and I had, had a friend named Stephanie uh, in Rapid City, and she had a horrible condition of loose ligaments. And throughout her teenage years and even into college, her knees would dislocate. And she described sit, laying there on the floor, basically with her, her knee being out to the side at like a 45-degree angle, just screaming in pain. Well, eventually, she had a surgery. And, and that surgery tightened up the ligaments of her knees so she wouldn't have to deal with that anymore. So why didn't they do that surgery right off the bat? Why allow her to go through all of this pain? The timing wasn't right. They had to wait for her to finish growing. Once she was done growing, they looked forward 
to this healing surgery. The power was there. The ability was there. And the will to do it was there. But what was best for her was to wait. For those of us who know Christ as our Savior, we will experience a final healing. I will have a full head of hair and be six feet tall. We will experience a final healing. And I know that it's easy to joke about a bald head. It's not easy to joke about a chronic illness. It's not easy to joke about a potentially terminal illness. It's not easy to joke about unpaid bills. But God is good. And God is great. And God can do whatever he desires. It is not wrong to ask him. But faith and hope trust in the fact that our great God, though he could fix it immediately, he is waiting for his perfect timing, for his glory, and for our good. Faith in God's power says, God, I trust that you can solve this problem I'm having. Faith in God's goodness says, God, I trust your love and you allowing this to persist for a reason. I mean, this happens um, in, in John 9 with a man born blind. When, when Jesus' disciples say, why was this man born blind? Is it because of his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus says, this has happened for the God's glory so that you might see the power of God. We see it again in John 11 with Lazarus. It says, Lazarus was sick. Lazarus was sick to the point of death. And it says that Jesus loved Lazarus, so he, let, so he waited there a few more days. He waited for his friend to die. We learn from that example that when God loves us, the greatest thing that he can do is to allow us to be involved in his glory. Jesus tells his disciples that. I'm glad that this has happened so that you might see the glory of God in the raising of Lazarus. The Apostle Paul writes to the Roman church about the groaning that all creation experiences because of the curse of sin. And you can read about this in Romans 8, and this is also from the New Living Translation. We, and we, believe, uh, we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering, we too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he has promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently for what we hope for. In the meantime, put your hope in the great physician. I've described both of these situations as being hopeless. And both the father and this woman may have felt like they had no hope at many times. 
But we need to ask the question, when did they move from hopeless to hopeful? It was when they chose to put their faith in the person of Jesus. At that point, they became full of hope, and they took their needs to him and trusted him for the results. I read this morning from Psalm 33, and I thought it would be good to close here. Verses 18 through 22. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him. Because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. Let's bow our heads. Father, you are worthy of our faith. You're worthy of our faith in what Jesus has done. Our faith in who Jesus is. Especially of what He has done in the culmination of his power and his person in the victorious death on a cross and resurrection from the grave. And Lord, we put faith in you for our future. We hope in you. Lord, like these, these, this father and this woman, Lord God, Let us be full of hope even before we see you act. Let us be full of hope as we look to the future in faith, knowing that you will one day end this groaning as a result of sin. You may very well bring solution to some of these problems now. But even if you don't, it doesn't mean you can't. Even if you don't, it doesn't mean you don't love us. Lord, we trust you. We rest in you. We put our hope in you, Lord God. Lord, I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.